Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Elizabeth II, the review. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And, <laughs> and welcome to Rex Factory, being all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And we, we really are here. Yeah. Last one of three. August 2010, the first ones, and now December 2013. Amazing. We are going to be doing more after this. This isn't the last ever episode of Rex Factor. No way. Playoffs in a new year and new series, perhaps. But it is the end of that journey from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. This is the review episode. It's the last one for Elizabeth. Here we are, standing at the top of the mountain, waving our microphone aloft. Yeah. <laughs> like the Rex Factors. <laughs> Elizabeth. So, let's get on. Yeah. Elizabeth II, born in 1926, the daughter of George VI and Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the Queen Mo. Mm-hmm. And she becomes Queen in 1952, when she was uh, technically still 25 years old, about to turn 26. And her relationship to Elizabeth II, yeah. she is Elizabeth II. Boom. There we go. That's Done very, it. that's close. Yeah, that's really close. I reckon Too knows... close for Christmas cards. <laughs> Definitely too close. <laughs> So, previously we've done uh, two episodes on her biography. The first one we did from birth to the coronation. The second one was effectively her life and reign. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear more on that and the backstory, listen to those two episodes. But all we're doing today are the factors. We're going to review her in battliness, scandal, subjectivity, and then the longevity, yeah. dynasty. Of course the issue for us is that she is still reigning. Yes, she's still there. I mean, we can keep updating the scores when we have some. <laughs> On a daily keep... basis. Yes. <laughs> Longevity's gone up again. Yeah. It's still going up. She's it. And it's gone up a bit more. Yeah. There. These are essentially provisional scores mm-hmm. because yeah. there's so much information that will become known in 30 years' time that we don't know now, which could. And it's awful trying to score without any distance. Because it's all so close, we're going to give her provisional scores, but we're not going to allow her to be eligible for the Rex Factor itself. It's impossible! We're either too close so that she's too familiar, we don't Mm. really give her a fair chance in the way that we would the dead ones. On the other hand, she is actually queen, therefore she's got that certain something that the others don't have. She's actually the queen. Although, something that you said earlier, Mm. the others have that advantage of having that sort of mythical status of being dead and so is that unfair it's so mythical being dead yeah yeah, they're sitting there are they alive but they didn't know they're definitely dead but I know so much about them it's confusing indeed however we are going to score her and we're going to do that right now Battleiness she's not done a lot of sword waving no I've seen a real sword have you mmm Knighthood Graham. Oh, of course, she's yes. done. And she looks a lot awesome doing it. Other battley things that she may have been mm. involved in. In the Second World War, as we heard in our biography episodes, she made a children's broadcast in 1940 when she was 14. Mm. Yeah, that was good. Bit. We liked that. 1942, she was appointed the Colonel in Chief of the Grenadier Guards, and she made her first solo appearance on a visit in 1943. Like her parents, like Winston Churchill, caused a lot of mischief by wanting to see the action. So whenever there are air raids, she's there at the windows trying to get a good look. So, you know, she's got that slight... Bloodlust. Bloodlust. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1945, she joined the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service. Auxiliary? Hmm. And territorial. 
So it's only, <clears> it's, only it's, it's two times removed from Frontline now. Indeed. Right. Um, George VI had been very reluctant to let her do any kind of service, but he knew at this point that the war was coming to an end. So she served as the honorary second subaltern 230873. I bet she could still tell you that number. She was a driver and a mechanic. Really? Yep, so knows her way around a car. Um, she did, of course, go back to Windsor every night, so she wasn't in <laughs> bunk beds along right. with all the other yeah. women. But she did manage to escape the officers' uh, clubs and join the other women for tea and lunch during the day. So her front, what you're saying here is her yes. frontline service yeah. is having tea with some women... In the mess room. And, you know, getting underneath the car. Getting and, underneath the know, car, yeah, fair enough. Getting hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. But just dirty with oil rather than the blood of German soldiers. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> At other points in her life, she has actually been in personal um, danger. Ironically, <laughs> not during Second World mm-hmm. War, but later on. A visit to Ghana in 1961, it was ruled by a dictator who was seen very much as a target for assassination. Uh, there were fears it was far too dangerous, but she insisted on going ahead right. and visiting. So she wanted to go ahead regardless of danger. Yeah. Um, in Quebec, 1964, similarly, there were press reporting separatist extremists that might have been plotting an assassination attempt. Mm. Riots also broke out when she was in Montreal, but again, she was placed, praised for her calmness and courage in the face of violence. Right. And as we went into in a little bit of detail in the second biography episode, there was a trooping in the Colour in 1981 where somebody fired six blank shots at her from close range. Oh, yeah. She was on her horse, Burmese, and she kept it under control and... Just carried on after a little start. <laughs> so, when danger presents itself, you know, she she's, pretty, up. she's yeah. pretty calm and collected yeah. about it. Fair enough. But there's not an awful lot for her to do. So, really, this is a story of her army. But she was in the Women's Territorial Auxiliary. Exactly. So, now, 1968 was an important year for the British Army. Do you know why? Sergeant Peppers? Uh, that was 1967 and no oh damn uh, white album then it was the only year in the 20th century in which the British army didn't lose any soldiers killed in action really only year 1968 so when did the troubles kick off in Ireland 69 then 69 yeah otherwise there's an awful lot of conflicts going on pretty much the entire time Mm. lots of them quite small in scale particularly in the first 20 years where we see you know, the end of empire yeah. and lots of countries getting their independence resistance movements. First one, the Malayan Emergency. Never heard of it. This is 1948 to 60. Uh, Malaya is sort of modern day Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, Malayan communists are rebelling against British rule, so there was this guerrilla war. 1955, they declared an amnesty. Talks with the rebel leader, Peng, failed. Um, so the conflict escalated. However, in 1957, Britain did something very clever. It granted Malaya independence. And this rather took the sting out of the tail for the uh, yeah. rebels. So, government declared victory. Peng went to Beijing. OK. Job done. Job done. Lovely. Then we've got the Mau Mau uprising. Oh, Kenya, yes. Kenya, 1952 to 60. So, Kenya, very sort of rich agricultural land. Obviously, Britain go in, <laughs> take all of the land, <laughs> causing some... Significant degree of economic hardship for the local people. Yeah. There are lots of different um, identities within Kenya. The Mau Mau are sort of the Kikuyu people, and they're the sort of more militant wing right. of it, and they decide to fight British rule. So one day, a European woman was stabbed to death and a senior official assassinated in broad daylight. Britain declared a state of emergency. We then had some massacres from Mau Mau's, particularly against actually. Kenyans rather than oh, right. Brits is more the actual well people who 
work with right. the Brits, yeah. get punished for it. British response, they set up screening camps originally to rehabilitate suspects, but ultimately they pretty much just turn into gulags. Nice. Um, and that was also, a sarcastic nice. <laughs> yes. It sounded a bit too genuine. <laughs> genuine. Yeah. 1955-56, some land reform concessions increased Kuyu land holdings, and that was followed by direct election for African members of the Legislative Assembly. And the resistance finally crushed in 1956, and the 1960 majority African rule was established. So, did that have any part? Did the uprising hmm. force the British hand to grant independence quicker? Yeah, I think quite a lot of these things you see where we're granting independence. It's kind of slash and burn. No, and it was going to happen. Burn, cut and run. Cut and run. It was going to happen anyway. Hmm. So, could this be? Could these be seen as losses that we're? To a certain extent. I mean, it's not defeated in these. We're not forced out, and the rebel groups are actually mm. defeated. I think it's a bit like you've got a wasp in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah. And you're not defeated. No offence to Africa. Oh, or any nation. <laughs> uh, and you haven't defeated it, you just put a paper cup over it, and yeah. then you leg it out the room. It's buzzing, could not let a cup over. <laughs> you see? So I don't think the wasp has lost, and I don't think we have won. Mm. Profound, I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> Very profound. Um, there's still compensation claims ongoing from um, people from Kenya yeah. at the time against British soldiers. Because of torture claims. Next up, the Cyprus emergency. Oh, yeah. yeah. 55 to 60. Greek Cypriot nationalists, again, the guerrilla war trying to end British rule. Um, so they wanted self determination and unity with Greece. This all got complicated by the fact that Turkey wanted to partition Cyprus. Uh, rebels sabotaged various military installations, uh, military convoys and soldiers, um, British soldiers assassinated. Oh, so these Turkish uprights? Oh, uh, the Greeks, so oh, the Greeks right, okay. doing this Greek Cypriots. Uh, the outcome was in 1960 that Cyprus gained full independence. That hmm. again, this is undermined when Turkey later invades and enforces partition. Doesn't take it all, just the half. Just half. Yeah. It's not actually recognised by the UN, but equally... Is not high up the priority list. No, it's not really. You're still going on there. The first really big conflict was the Suez Crisis. Yeah, we touched on this. It's 1956 um, in Egypt. The Suez Canal was the route through which something like two-thirds of Western Europe's oil supplies really? came, about 60 million tonnes, and roughly 15,000 ships passed through it every year, about a third of which were British. Wow! So Britain wants control of it, but... Britain's puppet king in Egypt gets mm. replaced by a nationalist hero, Nasser. Mm. He's revered across the Arab world. He nationalises the Suez Canal in violation of the 1954 treaty. Mm, which so, clearly in the wrong. <laughs> um, and the, pre uh, the PM, Anthony Eden, decides you need to do something about it. He'd made his name in the 30s by opposing appeasement. And he believes Nasser is essentially an Arab Hitler. Right. And... He's got to do something about it. You've got to stand up to this, mm. or Britain's interests are seriously undermined. So he concocts a secret plan with France and Israel, whereby Israel will invade Egypt, mm. unprovoked, and then Britain and France will say, oh, this is all awful, this war. We will step in and be peace brokers, and as a priority, we'll make sure that the Suez Canal is fine and filled with British and French troops. It's just so horrific. Everywhere you look at it, isn't it? it's terrible. Initially quite successful. Um, Israel do the invasion, Britain and France go in, they take out the Egyptian air force, secure the immediate objectives. Unfortunately, they don't reckon upon the reaction of America mm. and uh, President Eisenhower. The US had been excluded from 
all of the plans, and Eden overestimated the extent to which Britain could act unilaterally, yeah. i.e. without American support. Eisenhower threatens to withdraw support for the Sterling, and so Britain realises actually this would cause economic disaster, and basically they have to back down. So they pull out without having secured the canal, so it's left in NASA's hands. So all of that, yeah. people killed, yeah. and no end result either way. Ultimately, it reveals Britain's sort of post-imperial decline yeah. and how powerless we were on the world stage without American support. And another intervention in the Middle East. Yeah. You're lying in Parliament. It's all circles. You see, that was his 45-minute claim. Indeed, it was, yeah. And one way in which we could have bizarrely really boosted the power of the Commonwealth was uh, in 1956, with all the stuff going on around Suez, there were discussions taking place um, with the French Prime Minister about France joining the Commonwealth. Really? With the Queen as head of state. Of France? Yes. No, that is... that. You smashed it out of the park <laughs> with another X fact. So there was a chance they would finally... For, <laughs> three years nearly to the day yeah. since William I... Yeah. ...would be ruling France again. Yeah. It was just this one Prime Minister, however. Um, Eden heard about it and just dismissed it out of hand. Um, instead, France went off, established the EEC with the Treaty of Rome, moved them much closer to Germany. Next one, the Indian-Malaysia confrontation. I love the way there's a different uh, yeah, adjective for all of these. Uh, so this is Borneo, essentially, 1962-66. to 66. Uh, 1961, Borneo is divided into four separate states. So it was Indonesian in the south and British in the north. And Britain were looking to establish a new federation combining Malaya, North Borneo, Sarawak, Brunei and Singapore under the term of Malaysia. Brunei um, isn't so happy about all of this. Eh? A bit of resistance um, because of Indonesian resistance to the plan. Because they don't like the idea of this sort of big conglomerate. Yeah, want to be their own nation. Fair enough. So, there was an agreement there'd be a UN referendum about what would happen here, but North Borneo and Sarawak just declare their independence before the results are actually counted. Well, that's not cricket. Leading to war. Mm. So, Britain, using what it learnt in the jungles of Malaya, has patrols, local knowledge, trying to combat the poor terrain, so they're not sort of throwing themselves in their own territory they don't understand. The Gurkhas proved particularly effective. They're awesome, those In this circumstance. Indonesians very much lost the hearts and minds of some really brutal murders. Right. Of. Sorry, no, yeah. So 1965, a roundup of suspects in Borneo cons- coincided with an attempted communist coup in Indonesia. So troubles back home. Mm. Uh, that was followed by an army coup and a purge. So in 1966, the resistance ended. Okay, so the paper cup is over the creepy coolie. It is. Okay. Of Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> All of these insect terms that we use to describe countries that are about ten times the size of the <laughs> Yeah, terrible, isn't it? Oh, this is the man who said it. The Dauphin Rebellion. 62 to 76, this is Oman. Okay. okay. Um, a severely undeveloped state. Uh, the Sultan at the time essentially banned all aspects of 20th century life. <laughs> but for some kind of strategic reason, we gave him help to keep on ruling. Right, nice of us. Uh, but left-wing rebels were inspired by NASA and also got support from China and the USSR, mm. and they rebelled once again. The Sultan was overthrown, however, in a largely bloodless coup and replaced by his son, who then introduces major reforms, um, much more amenable. He'd been educated at Sandhurst. Yeah. 
and then the SAS get involved, but rather than shooting people, they do a bit of counterinsurgency with hearts and minds. So there's sort of a humanitarian campaign really? by the SAS. Wow. Yeah. They're sort of sniping bags of flour at <laughs> yes, people. Exactly. Wow. Uh, the rebels lost the port, suffered heavy defeats, and were defeated. Next up, the Aden emergency. This is uh, Yemen. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, 1963 to 1967, my grandfather, Eric, on mother's side, was actually there. Oh, really? In Yemen. He was with the RAF, so he was actually there. Cool. Which is quite amazing. I only found out quite recently. Uh, again, it's another insurgency inspired by NASA and his pan-Arab nationalism and opposition to British rule. A grenade was thrown at British High Commissioner, so once again, Britain introduced a state of emergency. Uh, largely guerrilla attacks against sort of off-duty officers and policemen. 1967 rebels provoked some riots leading to street fighting. Hundreds of soldiers who were meant to be on our side mutinied. Uh, 22 British soldiers killed, a helicopter was shot down. Mm. Really violent, lots of unrest, really struggling to keep any kind of order at this point. They do restore a bit of territorial control, but again, it's another instance where we pull out a lot earlier than planned. And with this one, there's no real agreement about what's going to happen afterwards. We just get out, basically. Leave. Yeah, mm, It's quite undignified, isn't it? Mm. Now, technically, of course, the Troubles is a continuous sort of military involvement for you know, pretty much 30 years, 1969. Yeah. I'm going to largely leave that for subjectivity when we come back to Ireland because so there's not a lot of actual kind of campaigning. Just the odd atrocity here and there. Yeah, and also British soldiers being killed as well. But yeah, yeah. We're putting our own little paper cup over there and <laughs> <laughs> running away from the difficult one. Uh, uh, 1982... Falcon tour. Mm. Now that's a that's a good war that one. If there is such a thing, <laughs> a good cut and dry, lovely yeah. war. Well, in the sense that it's not a sort of a guerrilla warfare. It's it's really in many ways the last traditional sort of air, land, and sea yeah, that's campaign. What I mean. It's sort of quite easy to understand. It's one of those where you fight and you win. Yeah, and then that's it. Someone invades, you kick them out. Yeah. A bit of backstory for the Falklands. I thought we covered it with that, hadn't we? Well. <laughs> France were the first to sort of settle there. They founded the port in 1764, but decided they didn't like it much, so they left it to Spain a couple of years later. Britain land in 1690, but didn't actually settle until 1765. Had to leave, when America caused a little bit of a fuss about independence or something like that. Uh, But Britain nevertheless left a plaque asserting their sovereignty. (laughs) Quite right. Just in case. Yeah. Um, 1816, Argentina declares independence of Spain as the United Provinces of the River Plate, and they colonise the Falklands. Now, we didn't mind about this too much at the time, because you think, well, we've got Napoleon kicking off, and Spain are kind of with them, so actually Argentina is stopping Napoleon, Mm. whoever using it. Mm. However, 1833, we decided we want it back. So we return, force the Argentinians off, um, 1841, Argentina offered to relinquish their claim in uh, as long as Britain gave some kind of compensation in return. Oh, we missed an opportunity there. And Britain thought, nah, too powerful to worry about this. This is never going to come back and bite us. Yeah. 1981, uh, Galtieri came to power in Argentina ahead of a military junta, and they were hoping to sort of boost support and distract from the economic hardship and terrible human rights abuses at the time. Um, so they launched surprise landings and minimal defences because people weren't really ready for it and after a few hours Falkland Islanders are captured right so now we've got the NIA in place we do exactly where we want <laughs> yes what's our, our reaction 
Thatcher establishes, uh, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, establishes a daily war cabinet and an impromptu task force. However, the US at the time believed that a counter-invasion from Britain was a military impossibility. And lots of uh, the those in government thought so as well. Because it's a, it's a long... Not, not to undermine Britain's claims to the Falkland Islands, but it's a <laughs> long way from Britain. Yeah. And it's quite a bit closer to Argentina, but it's a long way from us. So to actually, you know, the logistics of getting there... Mm. In terms of the air, we actually, bizarrely, have an advantage over Argentina here. Because we've got um, the... Uh, Vulcans. Uh, yes, but the aircraft carriers. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we are able to, you know, from fairly shortish distances, launch patrols mm. and attacks, come back. Argentina um, weren't really able to do it. It's actually a little bit too far away for it to be quite as practical as it would have been in terms mm. of the amount of fuel to go from the mainland. The Falklands only had three airfields which couldn't support fast jets, mm. so they had to go from Argentina. And do a little run and then dash back. Yeah. yeah. A lot of uh, naval uh, fights in this period, of course. Very controversial thinking of the um, Argentinian ship, the Belgrano, um, which was said to have been effectively turning back mm. at the point at which it was sunk, uh, which led to the death of 323 Argentinian soldiers and really hardened the Argentine response. On the other hand, they did withdraw the fleet after that, so Britain were able to establish sort of dominance yeah. of the seas. Yeah. Um, but the HMS Sheffield became the first British ship sunk since uh, the Second World War, mm. um, which was quite a big shock. Although, famously at the time, the crew, whilst waiting to be rescued, then pictured one of the wreckage, thinking always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some horrific casualties there mm. from burning, because apparently, to save money, we'd made... Navy uniforms out of nylon, so they burned horribly yeah. and stuck them in all kinds of gross things. So. Mm. Um, and also an infantry war. 4,000 landed around uh, San Carlos Water and established a beachhead there. And then the Battle of Goose Green saw sort of about 500 soldiers attack outposts in this day-night battle. Mm. Really, really long and uh, tough fighting. Uh, but it did culminate in Britain retaking the capital, Port Stanley, and Argentina surrendering. And so it you know, destroyed the army's image in Argentina, ultimately led to free elections in 1983, and the Falklanders were given a more liberalised economic measures and form of self-government. Right, OK. And Thatcher was returned with a massive majority, having been trailing in the polls yeah. just beforehand. So aside from that, the victories are twofold. Yeah. So you had uh, uh, a victory in the Falklands... Mm. And it prompted a democratic movement in Argentina. And the longest bombing run in history. Refueling Vulcans going all the way down to bomb an airfield and then come back. Mm. And we got one bomb on target. Psychological. <laughs> exactly. After that, in 1990 to 91, we have the first Gulf War. Yeah. Uh, Iraq accused Kuwait of exceeding the OPEC oil quotas, causing a slump in prices, which apparently cost Iraq something like $7 billion per year. Crazy. So yeah, quite a mm. quite a thing. They demanded ten billion compensation and launched an invasion immediately when Q8 only offered eight nine billion. Really? <laughs> Surprise attack meant that they captured Q8 after just twelve hours. Wow. I mean mm. Q8 isn't big, but Yeah. Wow. So US led a coalition of uh, thirty four nations. They sent troops to Saudi Arabia to pre- uh, prevent invasion there because that meant Iraq were now very close to Saudi oil fields. Mm. Um, Operation Desert Storm saw a huge aerial bombardment to destroy Iraq's, Iraq, uh, Iraq's air force. Kuwaiti troops liberated Kuwait City, while the Republican Guard was ultimately pursued back into Iraq. Mm. In terms of our involvement, about 50,000 troops were mobilised, 
Uh, the RAF were the second largest uh, sort of contributor of planes in the war. The army was involved with France in outflanking the Iraqi forces and destroyed something like 300 vehicles. Westland Lynx helicopters destroyed almost the entire Iraqi navy and also mine hunters helped clear um, sort of close around Kuwait. Mm. Uh, the SAS sent in sort of eight-man patrols and this sort of intelligence missions and destroyed some of the communications. That's where we got the, the Bravos one, two, and three zero. Mm. Uh, but it all went a lot better and quicker than expected. So apparently they ended up within 150 miles of Baghdad and weren't quite sure what to do. Yeah. Uh, decided ultimately, rather than pressing on and toppling Saddam, that they returned back to Kuwait, having effectively done what they thought that said that they do, mm. like liberating Kuwait. Kurdish leaders in Iraq believed that the US would support them if they uh, rose up against Saddam. Did we give them some sort of tentative nod that we would? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But that tentative nod didn't mm. help no. very much. Um, and of course it left a sense of unfinished business in the Bush family. Yes, which would burn away for another ten years. Yeah. So the next one is Kosovo. Mm. 1998-99. Kosovo is seeking independence from Yugoslavia. Uh, so he had served paramilitaries and um, army committing atrocities, something like 2,000 killed, thousands of refugees, humanitarian crisis. Uh, a three-month bombing campaign involved everybody in NATO, apart from Greece. Why not Greece? I'm not sure why not Greece. I mean, it's local to Greece. Greece and, yeah, but it's yeah. close uh, Tony Blair was pushing for ground troops when the progress was limited, but Clinton was reluctant to actually send in ground troops. Uh, Milosevic, the leader, Serb leader, agreed to come to terms when he realised that Russia wasn't going to come in and help. Mm-hmm. So, Yugoslav forces were replaced by peacekeeping troops. It did, however, nearly lead to World War Three. Yes, I've heard about this. When uh, Russia also went in as sort of peacekeeping troops, and there was a lot of tension at the time. There's one point where British troops were sent in to secure a town, but Russia took the airport mm-hmm. while the British troops were going in. And uh, the British commander on the ground at the time was the singer James Blunt. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly. Uh, the US general ordered him to take the airport by force, i.e. to engage the Russians in combat. <laughs> that is just the single most ridiculous order I've ever heard. <laughs> James Blunt sort of queried that. And then the British commander overawed it, saying, I'm not having my soldiers responsible for starting World War Three." Quite right. Sierra Leone often forgot about something mm-hmm. we got involved in. There's civil war there in, uh, well, 2000, 2002. Thousands of deaths um, of civilians led to the UN sort of getting in and negotiating. There was limited disarmament, and then increased rebel activity and an advance on the capital saw Britain decide to intervene before mm-hmm. something kicks off. So British troops helped evacuate thousands of people while the rebels were advancing. Uh, there was a British patrol captured by a militia group, but a successful SAS rescue managed to get them out again. Ultimately, though, the rebels were forced to disarm. Britain trained the Sierra Leone army and then were able to withdraw with the civil war finished. Another, another good one. So that was quite successful. It does get, tend to get overshadowed by mm. the next couple. But yeah. Next one is, of course, Afghanistan. Mm. I'm not going to go into massive detail with this, because mm. if for no other reason that it's still... Still bubbling away. Still bubbling away. 2001, of course, after September the 11th, the Taliban, who were harbouring al-Qaeda... Mm. Um, in Afghanistan so the the coalition led by the US went in and were victorious yes they they kicked them out as history is taught however Afghanistan is just impossible to conquer the planned finish Uh, June 2013 security was handed over from NATO to Afghan forces and next year 2014 with still a little bit of ongoing supportive presence the 
plan is that Allied troops will leave. And then I'm sure it'll all go swimmingly, and yeah. that'll be the end of that. The other one, of course, is Iraq. Yeah. That old dot. In 2003, the US and UK claimed that Iraq posed a major threat to the world with weapons of mass destruction. All of a sudden. Available within 45 minutes. Saddam Hussein was overthrown, uh, British troops involved in capturing Basra, but after that regime was toppled, it was followed by violence against coalition troops against, and sectarian groups. There was a, a threat of civil war that never quite... Yeah, 2007 happens. was that? It was yeah. a real... You never quite got to that stage, but an awful lot of violence is Mm. still going on. But in 2011, uh, Allied troops pulled out. Yeah, and there's still the government in place, but Mm. don't really feel right claiming Mm. a victory over that one. Not a big victory, although we did topple the And are there any weapons of mass destruction that are now an issue in Iran? (laughs) No! Also, at that point, 2011, we pull out of Iraq, and then Libya. Yeah. The Libyan intervention. Of course, yeah. In other words. Um, the Libyan civil war saw uh, Colonel Gaddafi's troops shelling the cities of Misrata, and, and uh, in particular, they were approaching Benghazi, uh, despite having agreed a ceasefire, and, and they were pretty much proclaiming that hellfire would rain upon, mm. upon them. So, uh, a no-fly zone was enforced, uh, halting Gaddafi's advance, Rebels pushed back with support from the Allies doing sort of strategic bombing. Um, ultimately, of course, led to Gaddafi being captured and assassinated and the regime falling. Mm-hmm. But again, what the actual outcome of that is on the ground for people... Too soon. Too soon. So, that is our battliness record. So, I think the first half is pretty rubbish. Mm-hmm. Although the paper cup is... Effectively placed over have to the deal with problem, it. yeah. And then there's a, a watershed moment in the 1980s where we sort of rediscover ourselves. Battiness is reasserted with uh, the Falklands, yeah. And then, then since then, they're more moral. You're more on solid ground with the morality of those wars, right but, up until 2002. Yeah, yeah. And they're effective hmm. right up until Iraq. Yeah. Um, so there's a good window there of great battliness. Although, obviously, with all of those, that's not Britain on its own. That's Britain as a coalition, mainly led by America, but with a lot of other countries. Yeah. So it's not that we individually are. No. But then, you know, that's the, that's way the, the modern world, world again. Yeah. That's a different form of conflict. Um, so, I mean, you've got to obviously balance that against things like the Suez Crisis. Yeah, which is uh, really I, the. I really feel like it's a tale of two halves here. Mm. And. Um, I wouldn't like to go any further than five to reflect that. Yeah, I think I think that's quite that's quite a good reflection, really. Mm. There, and that we aren't. If you look at the start of her reign to now, mm. the navy is much uh, smaller than the army and the air force, but much more effective in many ways. The, mm. the one ship can do what twenty did. Yeah, five. I think. Mm. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> I'm. It's it's quite quite confident in the. Uh, in the abilities of the of the army and yeah. the air force, all the combined okay. services, um, but recently they've just been a bit tarnished. Mm. And, it's, and it's tricky. Again, this is the thing with scoring it that it seems quite tasteless now. Scoring it does, doesn't it? these conflicts, but and almost I mean, quite personal. Like, how yeah. effective is your army? So I'm going for a five, yeah. and I was promised not to do that with all of them. Yeah, five for everything. I think. I mean, I think I'm going to go with five as well. Mm. Cause like you said, there've been some successes. 
some failures and some horrible horrible incidents horrible incidents some horrible wars and some sort of unpleasant ones even somewhere it's not that we were necessarily completely in the wrong but we weren't completely in the right and just awkward grubby conflicts so that's going to be a 10 for battliness scandal well I mean as you can imagine this this could last an hour this is going to go on and on yeah you ready for this yes as a girl Elizabeth was once heard to exclaim my goodness in the presence of her mother to which her mother responded that this was not pretty and should not be repeated I don't understand what's just happened the queen said the words my goodness in exclamation so could she not say anything with with an exclamation mark at the end of it I I can only presume it's the exclamation mark that was implicit in the tone that's uh, that's the scandal that she wants to use an exclamation mark hmm Good grief. I mean, sorry. Um, whoa, whoa. Uh, definitely an exclamation mark in that one. Oh, um, I don't know where to start. We got a scurrilous rumour about a man that she called Porchy. Uh, this is Henry Herbert Porchester, 7th mm-hmm. Earl of Carnarvon. Uh, his grandfather discovered Tutankhamen with uh, Howard Carter. Oh, yeah. And his family owns Highclere, which is now known across uh, the world. Downton, as yeah. Downton Abbey. Um, he was one of the Queen's closest friends and managed her racing stables from 1969. Um, died on the 10th of September 2011 and usually she attended the funeral she doesn't always attend people's funerals there were rumours that he was the father of Prince Andrew does that is that does that seem likely? it doesn't seem in any way likely and apparently the dates don't stack up at all right. no serious commentator actually right yeah I don't reckon that's true I mean so I'm just having to try and dig stuff up <laughs> yeah yeah really <laughs> The Suez Crisis, there's a bit of a question mark about how much she might have known. Oh, really? About well, because obviously she has those meetings with the Prime Ministers. Mountbatten, um, who's Philip's mm. uh, uncle, um, he was the first sea lord at the time and privately opposed to it. So it's pretty likely that he would have made his... So he'd have known about it before it known that this was a not particularly good idea. There were some people at the time who... Well, some people who subsequently claimed that the Queen was privately opposed to it and thought it idiotic. Right. Eden refuted Mountbatten's uh, claims in his memoirs that the Queen had known about it. And to be fair, a lot of senior figures were kept in the dark. Because even, like, MI6 didn't know... Really? ...that this was going on, yeah. But, and what could she have done? Yeah. We, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, how do we rate that? So, I, I don't really think that's no, scandalous, no. but... That's all I've got. I mean, I've, I've not put in things like the Diana conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. Well, again, that's Philip that tends to get the... Yeah, um, cause, and it's nonsense. And it's nonsense. Um, so that's it's quite a big score. I mean, she did say, my goodness, at she age did. 12 or something. Yeah. Um, I'm not even going to honour that with a score <laughs> of paid zero. It's got to be zero for me yeah. as well. That is not what the Queen is about. Yeah. Nice to escape some uh, litigation there. We did. We did. That was important. Subjectivity. So let's start with some bad stuff. Okay. There is an extent to which, you know, in her public appearances and her speeches and when she's at all these events, that she is a bit dull. Mm-hmm. In 1951, admittedly before she became Queen, when she went to Canada, the crowds wildly applauded Philip, but uh, Elizabeth got some criticism for not smiling enough. And she was contrasted with her mother, who'd been much more smiley and wavy. And Yeah, but, uh, well, her mother was drunk, <laughs> drunk the entire time. <laughs> Um, the Charteris encouraged her, saying, Please smile more, ma'am. But she responded, But my jaws are aching. 
<laughs> I guess it probably is quite uh, tiring to I smile the entire that's day. Your job, yeah, yeah, Easy just to blank face. But this is what we yeah. we valued other monarchs for. This this taking on this role as sort of the neutral head of state, and yeah. she's just refining that role further and further. Limited interests. Uh, Daphne Gimorio observed that uh, Prince Philip could sort of talk about pretty much anything and with quite a lot of knowledge mm. whereas the Queen's face only really lights up when discussing world affairs or horses yeah uh, Jackie Kennedy the wife of uh, uh, John F. Kennedy apparently found the Queen pretty hard going mm-hmm. when they visited and there's one point where she was taken down by the Queen taken down a sort of long galley looking at all these artworks nothing really much being said the whole time but then at one point the Queen stops at a Van Dyke and said that's a good horse Oh really? Just can't see anything. Can't see the paintings. Nothing other than horses. And yeah, we we don't see her smiling very not uh, very much or appearing to enjoy herself. So people think of things like the Olympics, some of the balcony appearances, the Jubilees, yeah. times when you know people are actually there cheering her and yeah. loving it, and then you just get this kind of frown. Yeah, but to be back. fair, she's not that keen on watching. <laughs> she's going there. To be fair, she just doesn't like it. Yeah, it's a pop concert. But I suppose she should. Could not. Oh, I don't know. She she was brilliant when the whole horse won at the races. She loved oh, she that. Loved that. Yeah, she loved she that. loved that. And at the uh, River Pageant, Diamond Jubilee Pageant, she loved it when the war horse was yes. at yeah. the roof. Again, both both times with a horse. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Her family management has been criticised by some people. And while she's been completely free of scandal, everybody else, pretty much literally everybody else in the family, <laughs> has not been quite so fortunate. Yeah. Apart from William, though. Well, the current, current, well, no, I was going to say the current generation, but obviously then there's (laughs) Prince Harry, (laughs) who has today made it to the uh, South South Pole. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So we had her sister, Princess Margaret, a much more exotic and sort of effervescent character, much more of the mood in terms of the swinging sixties. That was a little too of the mood, as we discussed Mm. last time. She lost her chance uh, potentially of happiness when she couldn't marry uh, the Air Force guy Townsend. The Queen, sort of largely a passive witness to the events, didn't really do anything to try and help. She just sort of sticks with Went the along. establishment and yeah. goes along with it. Um, Prince Charles um, has written about his unhappy childhood, mm-hmm. said to have relied on the Queen Mother for a lot of sort of love and support in those years. Um, when the Queen became the Queen and went on the sort of Commonwealth tour in 1953 and 54, Charles was only six at that point. Hadn't seen his parents for five months when they came back, but at the point where he attempted to join this line of dignitaries who were all sort of waiting to shake the Queen's hand. And apparently when she came along to him, she sort of said, no, not you, dear. And then, because oh. it wasn't, you know, it's this oh, little boy. Yeah. Um, however, Princess Anne, speaking up, um, said that she's not going to speak for anyone else, but I simply don't believe there's any evidence whatsoever that she wasn't caring. It just beggars belief. I don't believe that any of us for a second thought she didn't care for us in exactly the same way as any other mother did. Mm. So it's one of those we think it's probably it, it would be quite hard when your mother is the queen, the queen is and particularly when your gig. your child and your formative years to the point at which she becomes queen. Mm. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's just a hard hard card to play. It is one thing where she did get it wrong in 1966 in October was an Aberfan in Wales really? uh, there was a pit heap uh, collapsed in this mining village oh, yeah. South yeah. Wales engulfed the village school killed about 150 people of whom I think 116 were children yeah. really terrible tragedy um, the response to it the Harold Wilson who was the Prime Minister at the time Lord Snowden who was Margaret's husband and Philip visit immediately but the Queen didn't go straight away 
she uh, waited for another six days before she went up and she was criticised not for reacting sooner Why did, what was her decision behind that? I think just the sort of the process and things that the way that royal visits work and things like that she was sort of reluctant to do things quickly Right. So Charteris, the secretary, said she got that wrong and she knows it. It was a mistake and one she regrets. The scale of the tragedy called for an immediate response, but she is not a spontaneous person and she's not given to emotional gestures. Custom, form and precedent count with her. She tends to do what has done before. Mm. Yeah, there's no, there's no flair, is there? Yeah. And the Queen was also criticised in 1997 for her response to the death of Diana. Which again, yes, we covered yeah. in our second biography episode. She was at Balmoral with Philip, looking after William and Harry, taking them to church, keeping them away from press intrusion. But she became a focus of public anger because people thought she should yeah. be here in London. She's our queen. It's mm. a time of national mourning. We want to see the head of state. Yeah. Uh, Tony Blair at the time, looking well, Tony Blair looking back, saying that the outpouring of grief was turning into a mass movement for change. It was a moment of supreme national articulation. It was menacing for the royal family. I don't know what would have happened if they had just kept going as before. Possibly nothing, but in the eye of that storm, unpredictable and unnerving as it was, I couldn't be sure. Mm. But the Queen returned. There's this gradual applause that broke out as the cars came back. Oh, that's right, yeah. And then she made a speech explaining, in a way that she hadn't ever really done before, why, you know, what she'd yeah, be doing, why she wasn't there, and that really just turned the public mood mm. around again. And also, it's one of those where she criticised and not being a sufficiently loving parent when she's actually just carrying out her duties and then she's looking after her grandchildren while they're grieving for their mother people mm. are saying why aren't you here you should be here this is your role so mm. uh, 1953 to 54 they had that huge tour of the Commonwealth mm. um, that was just after she became Queen um, hugely important to be seen in person six months tour she, as she said last time Bermuda, Jamaica, Fiji, Tonga Australia, New Zealand all, all these places First reigning monarch to visit Australia, New Zealand, yeah, and lots of other places as well. Majority of the adult population in both countries came out to actually see her. Um, it's also suggested the uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney said that the Queen was a behind-the-scenes force in helping to bring about the end of apartheid Why? in South Africa because as a Commonwealth country and the pressure put on Commonwealth countries to, to put sanctions against Commonwealth to try and encourage... And into it. This is one of those things you spent in thirty years' time you'll have a better idea. Yeah. But it was very much suggested that she was someone I'm not gonna I'm not for a moment saying that the Queen was largely responsible for mm. positive events. It's but so difficult, isn't it? Hart was definitely in the right place. This lovely story was though because of course just last week Nelson Mandela died. Mm. Nelson Mandela apparently one time when he was trying to organise for someone from one of his sort of local tribe to be able to come to an official function, but he wasn't getting anywhere with the palace officials. So Nelson Mandela just rang the Queen personally because he's one of the people that can do that. Yeah. And Gordon Brown was saying he's the only person in the world that could get away with speaking in the way that he did. But he just called up and said, Hello, Elizabeth. How's the Duke? Really? <laughs> well, fantastic. 53 member states of the Commonwealth. Only 16 have the Queen as head of state. In a way, that's actually quite a positive thing. So it's managed to work despite the fact that all these countries are now independent. And yeah, yeah. It's a loose group, but they're all... Exactly. In terms of the Queen and her actual personality, what she is, what she likes, what her interests are, who is the Queen? We've got to find out. Go on. Handbags. She loves them. She's got something like 200 handbags. That's too many. Some are about 30 to 40 years old. But she doesn't carry money, she doesn't have a chequebook, doesn't have any credit cards, car keys, or a passport. 
What does she keep in her handbag? Yeah, what does she keep in her handbag? Probably Fools, just probably. lipstick and a meat hook. What? Lipstick for obvious reasons. And the for meat hook? To hang the handbag on when she goes places. Oh, right, like an S-shaped yeah. hook and that will grip anywhere. Yeah. Weird. Really weird. I mean, How does she spend money then? Well, she doesn't people... People do it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless she can just go up to somebody and saying, point to her face, <laughs> yeah. ten of these, please. <laughs> yeah, there's 50 times. 50, 50, there you go. She doesn't like champagne. Really? So apparently she only pretends to sip it at toasts. Yeah. And um, it was one time she replaced a very expensive brand with just a Tesco own brand. And she said, who can tell the difference when it's served wrapped in white cloth? So for an official function, she had them go out and buy a cheaper bottle. Yeah. But just wrap it up. So she know. wasn't out there with a trolley. No, <laughs> can't spend money. Yeah. Prefers simple home cooking. So very frugal. She would have leftovers um, that she eats the next day. So you know, have the Sunday roast, and then on the Monday you have a shepherd's pie or a cottage pie or something. That's fair enough. That's her forties upbringing. War generation. War. Yeah, rationing. Um, horses, as we've established, oh, is really horses. love of her life. Given her first pony called Peggy by George V when she was four. Mm. Grandpa England. Yeah, of course. Uh, she's a very accomplished rider. Um, she did Trooping Colour on horseback until 1987. Indeed, the coronation date had to be changed because it clashed with the derby. Really? Mm. Good grief. That's, her priorities <laughs> are to the country, as we've seen, mm. unless there's anything to do with horses. Unless involved. there's a horse race. Uh, her horse came second that year, and then she didn't win it again until... At all, in fact, until... Was it last year? Near 2012. Yeah. Um, but she's won over her horses have won over one and a half thousand races and now with the derby including all the five classics yeah so she's been very successful corgis as well is also the yeah. other thing very much associated with the queen um, she's owned more than 30 since 1952 and all current corgis and dorgies which are I think it's dormouse and a corgi. yeah dormouse and a corgi yeah. was it a bit dashend or is that oh, a massive dog no that's tiny yeah dashend and a corgi yeah, I think right. I think it's a mix of the two and they're all descended from one corgi called Susan, who lived from 1944 to 1959. Oh, sweet. Uh, they sleep in their own room at Buckingham Palace <laughs> in wicker baskets, which are raised just off the ground to avoid draught. Um, there's a lot of modernisation that's gone on in the last 60 years, despite the fact that she's so uh, such a traditionalist. Actually, the monarchy has changed and adapted. Um, we see the end of the debutante's ball, yeah, whereby yeah. in sort of it was in the 1950s it was stopped, but so effectively the young women of high society would be put on display yeah. say, here are some women who are ready to be married. And are of a certain ilk. Yes. It's gross, it's like a cattle market. Uh, we have the inauguration of the Buckingham Palace lunches for you know sort of ordinary people that have done good things in society. Touching is still discouraged. Of <laughs> anyone. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but five people have touched the Queen. Really? Inappropriately. Oh, right, OK. Not just ever. No. Uh, most recently, Michelle Obama. What did she do? I put her hand on the Queen's back when they were walking. I suppose... But it was a major it. moment because the Queen patted back. She reciprocated. Yeah, you'd have to, though. There's like sort of a bit of psychological power play there. I suppose she's so used to being... <laughs> The absolute, she's the head of state. Mm. She uses a Nintendo Wii, apparently. No, she doesn't. Apparently. Really? And she's For what? Mario Kart? Uh, we can only presume. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's... <laughs> okay. And she was given a personalised iPod by Barack Obama. No way. 
What's your helmet? So the radio can't get the horses. <laughs> oh. We've had a lot of stability from the Queen. Yeah, that's true. Particularly when, you know, she grew up, um, the reason that she became Queen when she did was ultimately because of the abdication crisis with Edward VIII in mm. 1936. And that's very much this sort of foundation stone in how she approaches the world and her role within it. Um, lots of family scandals, but she's always been this sort of sure, steady presence. Never really got anything wrong. You think 60 years of being the head of state, so many public appearances, so many speeches, never had a real blooper, never got it wrong, never brought country no, disrepute. Yeah. Very solid, very steady. Very so people criticising her for just reading the script and just doing this, but it's amazing to, to she's got a she's got a process, she's stuck with it, yeah. and it hasn't failed her in sixty years. Exactly. Mm. That must be pretty tough. You'd rather that she stayed diligent and proper rather than cracking some mother in law jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's worked very hard. Um only time she's ever missed the state opening of Parliament was 1959 and 1963. Pregnant? Pregnant with Andrew and then later Edward. Right. Whereas we contrast with Victoria, who yeah, <laughs> only about two times that she actually yeah. would yeah. attend. And uh, James Callaghan, Labour Prime Minister, um, said that the Queen has a deep sense of duty and responsibility and also sees it as a means of preserving the royal family as an institution. I think the prestige of the monarchy could deteriorate if she didn't work so hard at it. That's it. She's mm. got she's got that script, she's sticking to it, and it's working. Yeah, we take it for granted, but... Mm. Yeah. Imagine if Philip were king. Indeed. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> a lot more wars. Yeah, yeah potentially. <laughs> Um, in terms of her personality, apparently she was actually quite a skilful uh, mimic, noted for quite dry humour and asides. Again, the kind of thing that you'd never see in public, yeah. but in private. You just get to hear about it. Enjoys the country lifestyle. Oh, we don't have any examples? Oh, no, I don't really have mm. any witty asides. I'm not sure if they're that witty. Religion, very important to her. She takes the coronation oath seriously and literally. What is the coronation oath? Long. Right, <laughs> I'll read it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but essentially, that you know, that it's her God-given duty right. to be the queen and to uphold the laws and protect mm. you know, all these sorts of things. She sees that as her literally a duty from God. Right. Her reticence has been explained in terms of, you know, as in her not smiling, her not being more emotional. Anthony Crossman said that she finds it difficult to suppress her emotion. It looks like she doesn't. When she is deeply moved and tries to control it, she looks like an angry thundercloud. So very often when she has been deeply touched by the plaudits of the crowd, she merely looks terribly bad-tempered. She does, though, yeah. Mm. And you think times like the Olympics, I remember when she first came in, and she, you know, you've got sort of 100,000 people mm. going crazy, and she had a real face on. But if you look at it again in that context, you can think, actually, yeah, maybe she is just overwhelmed and just fighting, yeah. not reacting in any kind yeah. of way. So actually That's she really feels, interesting, She yeah. feels like she can't... Show that's not what you do. How well, weird would it have been though if the Queen came in and just started like waving both hands in the air with a big grin on? <laughs> I'd have thought it's an imposter. Um, there was one incident where apparently the four ministers who thought that the Queen was really furious with them when they were kneeling on the wrong side of the room had to make their way over and knocked a book off the table, and the Queen picked it up apparently looking blackly furious. But when one of them went back to apologise later, she said that she it was really funny and she'd be trying to stop herself from laughing. God, that's quite that's quite a, a um, unfortunate habit to get into. Yeah, people need to be able to read you more accurately. <laughs> yes, indeed. Good poker player though. Yeah, but I mean, poker players do it on purpose. <laughs> well, she's doing it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, in a way. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, on Britannia, her, 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 her yacht, yeah, uh, the royal yacht, and um, that's where she did let her hair down. 
a little bit more mm. and was able to relax. Um, very comfortable, again, in her style, very simple layout, no regal mm. splendour and gold and red and purple, anything like that. But very homely, so she was able to relax. Uh, MP David Owen, looking back, said that when the last gust goes, the Queen kicks off her shoes and tucks her feet under her skirt on the sofa. The face lights up and she becomes really attractive, so you realise how much is kept under control. Seems just terrified of showing any part of her. Yeah. And there was uh, Susan Crossland, who wrote this one instance, where the Queen rose to say goodnight, resting one hand against the handle of the open sliding door, which at that moment began sliding shut. The Queen gripped the handle firmly, pressed her back to the door, and moved with it as it slid slowly shut. Whee! said the Queen. Oh, so this is, this is an example of her being able to take herself less seriously. Yeah. When it was decommissioned in 1997, that was one of those rare occasions where we did see an ocean and yeah. she did actually shed tears mm. at the ceremony. Mm. Now, moving away from the Queen a bit, yeah. onto politics and actual events, stuff yeah. that's happened, what has it been like to be a subject of the Queen? Okay, let's hear it. We said before about a new Elizabethan era, and from a sort of cultural, scientific, all these sort of perspective, a lot of stuff has happened in 60 years. Yeah, I mean, from 53 to... Yeah, a lot of stuff we're celebrating. The arts, we've had likes of, uh, from sort of David Hockney to controversial figures like Damien Hirst, mm. Banksy, mm. nowadays, whoever he is. Maybe it's the Queen. <laughs> That's a right spot for you. Uh, playwrights like John Osborne, Harold Pinter, Tom Stoppard. Writers, J.R.R. Tolkien, getting yeah. back in there again. Yeah. C.S. Lewis, Ian Fleming of the Bond books, William Golding, Kingsley Amos, Harry Potter... Exactly, or A.K.A. J.K. Rowling. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, Roald Dahl, Terry oh, Pratchett, Douglas Adams, Hilary Mantel, uh, poets Ted Hughes, Philip Larkin, John Betjeman, pop music. Oh, where to start? The Beatles, who of course were presented with MBEs by the Queen in 1965. Yeah, very early in uh, The Rolling Stones, who, as mm-hmm. you said, the Queen was reluctant to knight Mick Jagger because he may have had yeah. a <laughs> friendship with Princess Margaret. Uh, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Kate Bush, nowadays still hugely successful mm. in America, Adele, One Direction, yeah. ruling the world. Though, uh, I mean, this is why it's difficult, because I reckon we can pretty sure about the Beatles. Yeah, in terms of a lasting cultural yeah. legacy. Yeah. But in a hundred years, people will still talk about the Beatles. The rest are not entirely sure. No. In sports, in 1966, we had the World Cup, which we won. Once. Yes. Brilliant. But in terms of the Queen and, you know, her role and stability and that longevity of course she was there at the opening ceremony and she presented the Jules Romain trophy to Bobby Moore, she was there at one yeah. day to present the trophy, it's still this shadow <laughs> over British sport and, you know, she you kind of there. feel that there was a recapture of the East with the Olympics in 2012 mm. it's a nice story apparently Bobby Moore, the England captain, when he was approaching the balcony, he wiped his hands on the velvet that was covering the balcony because he didn't want to dirty the Queen's hands when he shot oh, it. So it must look like yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must look rude, but it was actually doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um and yeah, she said last year we had the Olympics. Yeah. Huge success and again she was there skydiving out of the plane yeah. with James Bond. Very brave. Concord. Yes, of course. Technological stuff too. Anglo French project creating a supersonic passenger airplane capable of transatlantic flight in half the time of ordinary planes. Mm. Um, only a limited number made, and it didn't actually make any money. No. Which proved to be a bit of a fatal error. But it's just an exercise in what we can do. Um, and you know Concord, French for partnership. Mm. 
apparently during the process of developing Concord, there was a bit of a spat between the British <laughs> and the French. So the British dropped the E to make it less French. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as well as that, uh, Norman Foster, very, mm. very prominent architect. Uh, he did the restored Reichstag, London City Hall, which is that sort of bulbous shape yeah. along the Thames, London's Millennium Bridge, Sage, Gateshead, the McLaren Technology Centre, this huge sort of space building, yeah. very impressive. The centre of the British Museum, the Great Corps. Exactly, uh, the redone Wembley Stadium, and 30 St Mary Axe. Yes, that's brilliant building, I love it. AKA that. the Gherkin. Yeah. And the American Air Museum at Duxford, which is beautiful. Yes. James Watson from the US, but also Francis Crick and Morris Wilkins, with help from the late Rosalind Franklin, won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the DNA structure. Punching above our weight in terms mm. of population for Nobel Prize winners, really. Yeah. Amazing. So that showed how DNA replicates and encodes genetic information, so we now have the Human Genome Project mm. from that. More recently, the Higgs boson. Mm. Peter Higgs won the Nobel Prize with Francois Englert for the discovery of the what's called the God Particle at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. But I do think it's rather, um, <laughs> rather unfair that he got the Nobel Prize, although it's wonderful and he did jolly well, uh, better than I could dare to dream of doing <laughs> physics. But he proposed it. Yeah. 50 years ago or whatever and the people who actually discovered it yeah it was a major in. international project with yeah. people from all over the world yeah but still maybe oh, you should try and think it. think something up and then say prove it and then when they prove it in 50 years time yeah collect exactly. the exactly just to summarise it easily with thanks to uh, Laura Belton with a little bit of assistance here and uh, I told her I had to give a very brief mm. bullet point of what is <laughs> the Higgs boson <laughs> Basically, they theorise that a particle must be present at the Big Bang to explain why everything in the universe has mass. Yes. I touch is a physical thing. And this may be the particle that created all of that, so it might help us understand dark matter, radio waves, how the universe expands, and what mm. it's expanding into. So that's a god particle. Oh, there we go. Made it well done, it. Higgs. Yeah. And Boson. <laughs> and everybody else. And of course... Most importantly for us, the man we have to thank for Rex Factor Podcast, and well, not for the podcast, for the fact that everybody else is able to listen to it. Yeah, amazing. Sir Tim Berners Lee. I mean, that's effectively inventing the 21st century. Everything yeah. that we do is underpinned by the internet. It's just phenomenal. A lovely thing about this, he was working at CERN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, and he was just allowed to work on other projects. So in 1980, 1990, he developed HTML and then designed the World Wide Web, which went online in 1991. And then one of the great things about it as well is that at that point, it could have gone private, mm. in effect. But he set up with other people the consortium to create standards, one of which was that it would be royalty-free and available to everybody. Imagine if he got... He decided as inventor to get 0.00001p for every yeah. website or click or whatever. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So. However, not everything has been a lovely, wonderful, easy no? experience for oh. people, particularly in Ireland. Yes. We have the troubles. Yeah. Ireland featured quite a bit in uh, probably the last sort of 30 episodes of... <laughs> Ever since John started tugging their beards. Exactly, it was downhill from there pretty much. So we've got Northern Ireland, which is British yeah. and largely Protestant, 
but then all of the rest, which is the Republic of Ireland and largely Catholic. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who believe that Northern Ireland should be part of a united Ireland, yes. not subject to British rule. 1956-62, there was an IRA campaign to try and overthrow British rule and reunite the country, but a lack of public support and the introduction of internment rather killed the momentum of the border campaign. But in 1969, we have the start of what was known as the Troubles. Uh, initially, a bog-side riots. So there's a civil rights movement. Tragically, it starts with this, the civil rights movement, 1964, which was um, undermined by violent Republican parades and Ulster Volunteer Force, led by Ian Paisley. Yeah. I really hope you get to do an Ian Paisley impression. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> really. Um, so yeah, so it gets taken over by just violent paramilitaries on either side. Yeah. British troops are sent in to restore order and were initially welcomed because they were seen as being neutral, they'd be able to sort it out, they'd prevent right. things from escalating. Oh, okay. so initially it was quite welcome, but ultimately they were seen as being biased and things get quite nasty. Yeah. 1972, uh, there was an internment, so you know, banging people up in jail, yeah. often got the wrong people. Nice. Which just tended to... Make a new extremist. Exactly, yeah. make new extremists. Bloody Sunday in 1972, 19, uh, 26 unarmed um, civil rights processes and in bystanders were shot by British troops. Initial inquiry at the time exonerated the British. Pills of Freeze. Which obviously didn't help matters very yeah. much. Um, after that, still 1972, lots of violence between Republican and Union groups. Cities effectively were just split by sectarian borders. Mm. So absolute no-go areas. Britain had to introduce direct rule in terms of the governance of Northern Ireland. And um, nearly 500 people were killed in just in that year alone. Wow. 1974, we have the Birmingham pub bombs. So 21 people killed mm. in two pubs. 1979, the assassination of Mountbatten. Philip's uncle, this huge figure within the royal family, yeah. and well, and Britain really, and also 18 soldiers were shot on that same day. 1981, hunger strikes, so 10 Republican prisoners in Ireland, led by Bobby Sands, starved themselves to death. Over 100,000 people attended his funeral. Wow! Mm. Wow, that's huge. Margaret Thatcher's. Uh, was she there? Was she? Wasn't at the funeral, no. and it's probably fair to say that her disposition did not endear her to people yeah. in Ireland. 1984, indeed, there was a bomb at the Brighton Hotel during the Tory party conference that year, and Thatcher actually narrowly avoided being yeah. killed. She just happened to have gone into the right room yeah. at the right time. Oh, scandal. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, uh, otherwise, she could have been killed. Yeah, she reacted quite well to that. What yeah, so they carried on with the conference the next she gave day. She a speech saying, mm. sh- not a show must go on, that's Queen, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the que- not the Queen. queen. Yes. Um, however, late 1980s, we start to get the beginnings of a peace movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin uh, started seeking a negotiated end to the conflict, and particularly important was the involvement of Bill Clinton, the American yeah. president. He sent his envoy, George Mitchell, in to negotiate and showed real strong interest, showed that actually they were serious about trying to negotiate some kind of peace. 1997, the last British soldier was killed in Ireland, and the IRA reinstated a ceasefire. Sinn Féin agreed George Mitchell's principles for disarmament joined the peace talk, so everybody was now right. around the table. And then Good Friday in 1998, we had the Belfast Agreement. Um, just after there had been an IRA bomb in Omar, which had killed 29 civilians, real outcry of this, people really angry about this, mm. and there's a real sense that there's a mood for peace. Yeah. 
So, the agreements he self-government restored to Stormont, to Northern Ireland, with power sharing. So everyone's Everyone owns it now. involved in this. Withdrawal of British troops and the slow decommissioning of IRA weapons. Hmm. So, still problems. Still a lot of problems, still a lot of sectarian violence, but it's a lot better. Yeah. yeah, yeah Hugely yeah. better now Usually, than it was. Yeah. Because of the peace agreement and because of the improvements that have been made, May 2011, the Queen, for the first time ever, made a state visit to Ireland. Yeah, amazing. No monarch had visited since George V in 1911, so in 100 years. Um, her children had been in the 90s and 2000s, and Mary Robinson had a state visit in 1993. So Jerry Adams was one of many people who didn't actually think that it was a very good idea. Mm. So he said at the time, I don't think this is the right time for the English Queen to visit. And the Deputy First Minister, Martin McGuinness, um, refused to meet her when she came over in Dublin. Right. So there's a lot of tension. Still simmering. Unease about this. It's the biggest security operation in Irish history, um, but she did a lot to win people over. She arrived, came off the plane in a green dress and hat. Yeah, a nice touch. Emerald Isles mm. colours. Um, visited the Garden of Rem- uh, Remembrance, which is a memorial to those who died for Irish freedom from 1798 to 1921, mm. i.e. those who died fighting Britain. Yeah, it's a really difficult tour. Also toured the Guinness Storehouse and then the National War Memorial Gardens. So that's for those that died fighting for Britain in the First World War. Yeah. So she's been careful not to just completely... The one-sided yeah. Pair, yeah. Uh, but most significantly, she visited Croke Park, which was a massacre of football supporters in 1920. A really powerful, important cultural point for the Queen to go there would have been just unthinkable mm. in previous years. Um, but she's able to do it. And then at state dinner in Dublin Castle, uh, Castle, her speech drew widespread praise, uh, particularly beginning with a welcome that she delivered in Irish. Yeah. To which um, Mary Ackerley was seen mouthing "wow" several times. Because it's such a, a, a such a statement, such a such a gesture, olive really. branch. Yeah. yeah. And in the Queen's speech, she didn't actually go as far as to apologise for things that maybe mm. haven't gone quite as we might have liked. <laughs> But she did say, This is a sad and regrettable reality that through our history, our islands have experienced more than their fair share of heartache, turbulence and loss. These events have touched many of us personally. To all those who have suffered as a consequence of a troubled past, I extend my sincere thoughts and deep sympathy. Sweet. That's nice. Not quite Mm. an apology, but... But, Yeah. mm. Martin McGuinness did then meet the Queen when she later came back to Northern Ireland and shook her hand. Given the fact that he was involved in the IRA, you know, for the Queen and for him, that's but for both of them, that's a big gesture. And Jerry Adams has uh, changed his mind as well. So he described that meeting as the right thing to do at the right time and for the right reasons. Mm. So, you know, a very positive thing and showing what what the Queen as that head of state can still do. Just mm. so brave of her to do. So, we now move on to politics. So we're going to do some of the key things that have happened in the last 60 years in terms of politics. Yeah. In terms of the Queen's relationship with her Prime Ministers, she doesn't distinguish between political party particularly, they're just the political class. They're all the same, they're just her All the same, exactly, doesn't matter too much. Um, And she has 25 meetings during the year known as the audience between her and the Prime Minister, and it's just the two of them, the Queen, Prime Minister, no Secretary, no one taking notes, no records, just the two of them having a conversation where the Prime Minister tells her basically what's going on. Right. And mm. she's able to 
speak, to ask questions, to listen. Mm. And um, she's got a wealth of experience. Um, but Gus O'Donnell, former cabinet secretary, said that you know the prime ministers basically really enjoy these meetings. So they go out of their way not to miss it. It's a safe space where prime ministers and sovereigns can get together. They can have those sorts of conversations, which I don't think they can have with anybody else in the country. They come out of them better than they went in. Let's put it that way. Yeah, must be like therapy. Because you know, therapy, they're not going to leak, have yeah. the, uh, the meeting leaked by the Queen. Mm. Mm. It's probably about the nicest, safest, most reassuring meeting that they have all week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So she's had various Prime Ministers, started off with Churchill, yeah, of course. old chap, yeah. moved on to Anthony Eden, who had been very popular, is a good-looking man, had a hat named after him, yeah. but Suez Crisis... Terrible. Absolute disaster. Yeah. He lied to Parliament. Oh, we, that's outrageous. Never heard of that. And he stepped down in 1957 with ill health. He was replaced by Harold Macmillan, mm-hmm. of Macmillan Publishing fame. Yes, amazing. Old uh, Etonian. I uh, was famed for the First World War where he got wounded uh, in the Somme and spent an entire day in the trench with a bullet in his pelvis reading Aeschylus in the original Greek. Superb. That's the kind of chap. Economic boom in this period led to the famous phrase that... Um, known now is you've never had it so good mm-hmm. actually said most of the people in our history basically have never had it as good as this and you think economic boom after the rationing and second world war NHS all of those reforms yeah it's probably true it probably was yeah. true and we also had what he described as the wind of change blowing through this continent i.e. Africa huge decolonisation and he had a pragmatic approach that basically accepted yeah, I like that. Yeah. Crises, of course, with the Perfumo scandal, with mm. the minister having an affair with a call girl who was also having an affair with the Russian mm. minister. He resigned due to having inoperable prostate cancer, which turned out to last for 26 years or so afterwards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lived on a while. He was replaced by a lord. Of course. Alec Douglas Hume. And this was in the... What, what? So it's 1963, right. so this is a period at which the Beatles are just kicking yeah. off, and he's not quite your typical no, 60s, 60s figure 60s, yeah. um, he he only came to power because Macmillan basically used his old Etonian influence or the magic circle yeah. as one critic claimed to make sure that Rab Butler didn't become Prime Minister and instead someone more amenable and more he, his sort his sort so you could see the Queen as having been used in this period a little bit naive perhaps so by giving her that advice waiting until he knew that he got support that kind of made it but official. But she couldn't do anything anyway. Exactly. Just, they didn't have a way of electing leaders, but after this they did. Right. And then they arranged from now on, Charteris, the secretary, said that from now on you stay Prime Minister until a new one is elected. Mm. So even if you lose the election, you stay as Prime Minister yeah. until we've got a new one to appoint. So that basically just takes all of the decision-making away from the palace. Quite right. So it's been much more stable since yeah. then. He was followed by Harold Wilson, and we had incredible social reforms under Wilson, mainly the Home Secretary Roy Jenkins, but we had the abolition of capital punishment. Yes, excellent. Decriminalisation of homosexual acts. It's all going well. Liberalisation of ad- abortion laws. Mm-hmm. Abolition of theatre censorship, because previously somebody had to basically give you the okay to do it. And you can portray the Queen on stage and all this kind of stuff. Um, statutory maternity leave. Um, racial discrimination is illegal, Equal Pay Act, Welsh Language Act, a major reduction between the sort of richest and poorest in society. Right. And it's the first time that more was spent on education rather than the, the defence. So a hell of a lot in his his era. What, what years were these? So it was, that was 64 to 70. Oh. Um, he also kept Britain out of Vietnam, of course. Excellent. Which well was done. quite a, a good move, but still maintained good relations mm. um, with the Americans. And he got on very well with the Queen. So he used to stay 
for hours for his audiences. So it used to it would just be you know like thirty minutes or an hour. Or so but for him they just got longer and longer, and yeah. then he'd even stay for drinks afterwards. Brilliant. And uh, when he left as prime minister for the second time in nineteen seventy six, she actually attended his leaving dinner at Ten Downing Street, and she only did that for Churchill. Otherwise, you've got to be pretty annoyed if that doesn't happen to you now. Yeah, the next guy would be like, yeah. but, but, but we were chums. So Wilson, probably the Prime Minister that she got on with the most. Mm. And particularly there were sort of Republican elements in Labour in this period, with like Tony Benn mm. trying to get her head taken off stamps. Yeah. And Wilson, very much pro-monarchy, so he was quite important in yeah, easing yeah. some of those relationships. Ted Heath wasn't quite the man of the people. Um, unusually a bachelor. Yeah. A yachtsman. Yes. Man cloud, after your own something, yeah. something with a cloud. Um, he yeah. captained winning team for Admiral's Cup in 1971 and conducted the London Symphony Orchestra in 1971. All our Prime, Prime Minister. Yeah. But really difficult economic circumstances here. High inflation, high unemployment, oil prices quadruple, energy crisis results in three day working weeks. Yeah, um, ended up declaring five states of emergency. Different colours or? Uh, I think just different incidents of oh, okay, national sure. import. And really um, difficult period for Britain, which was dubbed the sick man of Europe at this time. That's really damning, isn't it, after Turkey at the turn of the century? Exactly. So Britain very much seen on the decline at this point. Yeah. Not an easy period. Lots of strikes and militancy yeah. with the trade unions. Also difficult for the Labour Prime Minister who came afterwards, 1976, James Callaghan, the only man to have served all four major offices of state, Chancellor, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister. Wow. Under Wilson. Under Wilson. Yeah. And then, of course, under himself, yes. the Prime Minister. Um, again, international loss of confidence in the pound, rising inflation, had to get a loan from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, cabinet divisions, they lose their majority through by-elections. He has to have a Lib Lab pact just to keep the thing going. Mm. And then 1979, there was a winter of discontent um, in which road haulage and oil tanker drivers demanded 25 to 30% pay rise when there was a pay freeze. Right. So you had all these strikes where you'd got um, hospitals where it was only emergency um, entrance only. Liverpool, grave diggers refused to bury the dead. Okay. And when Callaghan came back and dismissed talks of a crisis after he'd spent a while on a beach in Guadeloupe. Nice. Didn't go terribly well. No. Lost the 1979 election and was replaced by Margaret Thatcher. Yes, big figure. Very big figure. The probably most significant um, Prime Minister under the Queen mm. certainly and the most controversial first ever and so far only ever female Prime Minister in Britain mm. also the thing that she was most proud about the only one with a science degree yeah I like that she likes that woman mm. yeah. very famously in 1984 minor strike um, where Arthur Scargill um, opposed Thatcher's plans to close 20 of 174 state-owned mines, which ultimately resulted in the loss of 20,000 jobs. Mm. She was seen very much as having stood up to the unions who had crippled Britain in the 70s, so goes the mm. theory. Wins a lot of respect from many people that she's able to deal with the unions the way that previous people hadn't opposed sanctions against apartheid. Yes. Queen was said to have felt uneasy about this and some of the social divisions that were fostered by all of this. Yeah, they, and they were significant. But she did later appoint Thatcher to the Order of Merit and the Garter, so... Is, is, is that her choice? I, yeah, the, the Merit, certainly, oh, right, Order okay. of Merit is. Thatcher ultimately falls in power after he had the community charge or poll tax, in which mm. basically everybody plays the same flat rate of tax. So whether you're a widow in a council, uh, council flat or you're a lord in a castle, 
Yeah, they all play the same. So she became the first Prime Minister to be removed by ballot of her own MPs in 1990. Yeah, and understandably then sees it as a real stab in the back. A little bit miffed. She was replaced by John Major. Um, Initially it started well, praised for his leadership in the Gulf War, won the 1992 election, and he does oversee the beginning of those um, negotiations with Ireland. Right, yeah. For the peace, but it was all sort of top secret at the time. But I think his role in that has been acknowledged as being very important. Almost assassinated by the IRA when um, mortars were launched at Downing Street. Oh, they landed in the garden. Landed in the garden, narrowly missed, and it would have wiped out the entire cabinet. And it wasn't that far off. Uh, But things went downhill. 1992, Black Wednesday, billions spent trying to defend the currency value, but forced to exit the European exchange rate mechanism. Economy shot. Even though it recovered after that, they Mm. never really recovered in the polls. Terrible sleaze Mm. as well. And he lost the 1997 election. Biggest loss in seats since 1906. But it'd been 18 years. For 18 years in office. Um, and he's replaced by Tony Blair. Yeah, the and second most controversial figure. 1997, uh, New Labour, of course, so they rebranded mm. the Labour Party, so they got rid of Clause 4 commitment to the common ownership of the means of production exchange and exchange, i.e. nationalisation. Mm. He was the youngest Prime Minister since Lord Liverpool in 1812, so Blair was just 43 at the time. And it's surprising, actually, a lot of good stuff in that first term. Grant, granted the Bank of England independence, we had the Belfast Agreement, devolution in Scotland and Wales, uh, Freedom of Information Act. Yes, yeah. Opening up government. And really significant reforms uh, for LGBT, so lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender. Age of consent was lowered to 16 mm. for uh, homosexuals. Lifted ban on homosexuals in the armed forces. Adoption by gay couples was legalised discrimination outlawed in the workplace gender recognition act allowed transgenders to change their sex on their birth certificate oh, right. and 2005 of course later the civil partnerships act so over 30,000 um, then by 2006 were in civil partnerships oh, right. yeah a lot but of social stuff September the 11th came on mm. then he started totting up the Blair Miles flying all over the place mm-hmm. and getting support for action yeah. in Afghanistan and that rather took things over and it's his whole legacy really is now seen as Iraq yeah totally and what's known as the dodgy dossier in which they claim that weapons of mass destruction available within 45 minutes yeah subsequently been revealed that the intelligence was very very wrong wrong yes however in his third term he played an important role in um, winning the bid to host the 2012 Olympics yeah, yeah of, course the, of course the day after that was announced was when we had the July 7th bombings yes um, biggest terrorist attack um, just within this country, 52 people killed. Um, he was the first Prime Minister to be questioned by the police in a criminal investigation over cash for honours. Oh, yes. Not thought to have a particularly close relationship with the Queen, never stayed for drinks. No. Apparently, no. but um, he did actually come to really quite value those meetings again. Yeah, and persuaded her to come back to London in... During the, the Diana period, period, of course. Business. Sherry Blair apparently also infamously refused to curtsy to the Queen but uh, apparently the Queen was just amused by this and said that I can almost feel Mrs Blair's knees stiffening when I come in (laughs) good response Blair resigned and he was followed by Gordon Brown in 2007 Um, initially it all went very successfully for him like Callaghan though didn't call that autumn election yeah yes and then everything just nosedived for him after that and of course Brown was in office when the global recession that we are now still enjoying to this day um, hit. 
though to be fair, very much a leading figure on the international stage in getting an agreed sort of stimulus. Package. Yeah, that was a really good role for him. Yeah, and he's probably one of those where we'll look back and say actually that was a hugely important. Yeah, although it did let it go to his head when he said he sli- <laughs> slipped in Poland and said, "We have saved the world." I mean. <laughs> He survived various coups within his own party, but 2010 election introduced the first ever TV debate in this country. Oh, yeah? Had them mad for a long time, failed to recover in the polls, and resigned when ultimately David Cameron was able to form a coalition. Mm. Um, David Cameron of the Conservatives formed a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and yeah. Nick Clegg. Um, it was the first coalition since the Second World War. Really? Yes. Crikey. Okay. The incredible thing with Cameron was that she actually. Um, because he went to the same school as Prince Edward and at a similar time they were both in a like pantomime together right, right. the Queen actually saw him <laughs> as a young boy that's amazing and then he's a Prime Minister wow. um, so that was in 2010 Cameron actually descended from William IV the Rex Factor winner yeah. but through his illegitimate uh, relationship with Dorothea Jordan but technically that does mean that Cameron is the fifth cousin to the Queen but he is still the Prime Minister and the Queen is still the Queen there we go so that's uh, that's rather a lot of stuff there, but that's subjectivity for the Queen. Uh, I personally think that aside from the current financial <laughs> crisis, aside from how things are right now, yeah, aside from what it's like to be, a, I mean, this is the first time ever we can directly say what, what it's, it's like, like to be subject. Yeah. Um, aside from that and Ireland, mm. it's amazing. Yeah, never had it so good. Never had it so good. Although I suppose that we're still. I've got to think beyond my lifetime. Yeah. All of her reign. Yeah. Still there, of course, in the 70s. When and Ireland's pretty rubbish. Ireland's not so much fun. But, overall, from the 50s to today, yeah, it's big. Pretty good. But, oh, I'm, I'm do we have anything, I again. do we have anything on the lines of, like, you know, the creation of the NHS under George VI? No, we don't. Is there anything that's that big? No, there's lots of social forms. There are more tweaks, equalities, I suppose, essentially. Yeah, not a bad thing. And all and all of the the technological and and the music and the art, the cultural stuff, the cultural stuff's yeah. huge. I'm going to go above five, yeah, because of all that stuff. And I'm going to go for a seven, mm. a nice round, even pick a number between one and ten. Usually, you're going to say seven. I'm, I'm going to give her an eight. Mm. Subjectivity in this one, I think it is good. And I think one of the problems, of course, is particularly when we go into it in this sort of detail, is that you say, "Oh, but that was bad," oh, and this is good. But you think ultimately, because we're here today, we can say, "Well, how is it now?" We've had a lot of good stuff done, and there was bad stuff. But you'd say ultimately, it's good. It's come yeah. through the bad stuff. I mean, it's so hard to do without with it being so open ended. Yeah, and without any perspective on it. It's almost impossible. We're having a stab, but as yeah. you say, these are just provisionals. So it's a seven from you, an eight from me, so mm. that's a fifteen for subjectivity. Longevity. February 1952 to... Uh, now I've got in my notes, November 2013. Of course, it's December 2013, so I'm going to have to recalculate what I put for the <laughs> longevity. So let's call that 60.8 years. Which gives her a score of nineteen point one three. Oh, second. That is the second best. Second and what's only Victoria? to Victoria. Well, Victoria's twenty, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. That's uh, how but worked out. With sixty three point five eight years, and second longest reigning monarch in the UK. How long has she got left to go? Tenth of September two thousand and fifteen. Is that when she'll equal it, or when she'll? I think that's when she'll get the record. She is the longest lived UK monarch. Okay, well that's a good. We got that. Uh, well, we can end on that record. That's good. <laughs> that's pretty good. 
Dynasty, not the program. Four children, mm-hmm. all of whom are still alive, which is a score of 6.68. And of course, she's got this incredible succession already. She's got eight grandchildren, three great grandchildren. Yeah. And it's the first time since Victoria that we have three direct heirs alive at the same time with the birth of Prince George of Cambridge. So we've got Queen, Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince George. Prince George. Yeah. So that gives her a total score of 50.81. Which, yeah, that's not too bad, actually. That's, uh, that's between Henry IV and Alfred the Great. And what position is that? Uh, so that's, uh, I think, 12th. Oh. Now, as we said, we're, we're not going to give her well we're not going to consider her for the Rax Factor I think I mean she is the queen yeah she's got all of that star quality that comes with it because she is the queen she is the queen and she's there and I think it's one of those where you think in 30 years time someone who's queen for that long such a presence with those kind of years a lot happens Mm. but I suppose it will be the question of whether or not we've got enough of her Mm. that certain something that star quality is if you're queen for if you're ruling for a long time and you don't get anything wrong, is that enough for the Rex factor? No, I'm not sure it is. Mm. And, and we gave it to Victoria, even though we. Oh, no, certainly I didn't mm. want to, because she represented a lot, and she wasn't just, didn't not just as head of state, but mm. during the era of massive imperial power. Yeah, she was, she the, was the face of that, and I'm not sure that that's true, of Elizabeth. Although we've talked about a new Elizabethan age, I don't. You don't really. F- don't think of yourself that, yeah. as a new Elizabethan and I think the Victorians did at the time yeah they were Victorians they, they were Victorians yeah, yeah. Mm. but as you said that's all speculation we don't know what we'll learn in the next 30 years yeah. about the Queen it might be good it might be bad it might not change our opinion one way or the other we'll come back and do it in 2043 but that is it and for now that is it for now but in, in terms of that journey from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II we have done it we're there we've actually done it Boom, high five. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening, but we'll be with you soon. Yeah, so thank you for all your emails and tweets and messages on Facebook, me. everything we've had from people <laughs> over the last few years. Just undermine it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be back in the new year in 2014 where we will have the playoffs between Woo! the 18 Rex Factor yes. winners and nice. we'll decide who was the best of all and we'll be getting you to get involved and to help us to it's vote. It's going to be interactive. We're going to compare all these different monarchs William the Conqueror against Charles II Henry VIII against oh, George yes. V it's going to be You're absolutely love brilliant. It. So it's a different feel to Rex Factor but it's going to be fun and Go, go, go. Basically, after three years, we've finished the audition stage and we're now at yeah. the actual competition. Yeah. Here we go. See. It's going to be great fun, but until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. Happy Christmas. And New Year in that. <laughs> <laughs>